Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fult. I'm your podcast host and a professor uh, coming to you from Archer, Florida at the Exotics Farm. And today we're going to do something different. Now, last week, Drs. Jennifer Dudna and Emmanuel Charpentier were awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their work on gene editing. At the same time, what was described as an esteemed panel was being organized to denounce gene editing, describing it as just another dangerous GMO technology. So we really wanted to uh, contrast. You know, why is this uh, technology being so lauded on one side, yet being so... Uh, criticized on the other. Who's right and who's wrong? Well, what I would like to do today is take a look at that presentation by the esteemed panel and provide you with kind of an idea. I want you to understand how they roll, how they use fear, uncertainty, and doubt to raise questions that really don't exist. We know the answers, but they can uh, create this idea that we just don't know. And it's that kind of fear, uncertainty, and doubt that, uh, that is really their brand. So this panel, this is, um, it was moderated by Rachel Parent. Those of you who know Rachel, um, she was self-described as a youth uh, food and climate activist. Uh, she is the daughter of the owners of Nutrition House, which is a franchise uh, health food organization in Canada. And has uh, certainly some interest in in the uh, food technology discussion. Years ago, she uh, they she was used by uh, USRTK and other organizations to go after me, saying that I was uh, attacking a teenager. We'll talk about that sometime. Also on the panel, um, uh, Claire Robinson. The, one of the curators of the hate website, GM Watch, the one that criticizes and destroys scientists and takes away their credibility, um, ensuring that uh, their reputations are smeared. So this is a great panel. Michael Antonio, who's the closest thing you can get to a real scientist. He has done some work at King's College over the years. Megan Westgate from the Non-GMO Project. Uh, Jim Thomas, who I didn't catch exactly what he is. Uh, Vandana Shiva, who describes herself as a physicist, um, who uh, has uh, is, is her history. And um, I think that's everything. Yeah, that's everybody who is involved. Oh, Jonathan Latham. Uh, Jonathan Latham, who uh, is an interesting cat, who runs a website called uh, Independent Science News. And he did his PhD at Norwich uh, in the UK. He actually did it in molecular biology and virology. And uh, the people there are very embarrassed by what he has become. 
Uh, he has, uh, no one really knows what he does for a living. He other than, uh, criticize scientists and, uh, legitimate scientists. Um, I, I actually met him outside of a meeting one time where he was handing out flyers about me <laughs> and, uh, that was fun. So, um, with, let's start, uh, just listen to this, uh, whole thing. We'll probably do this in two parts this week and next week, but I will listen to what they're saying and then I'll provide my commentary. So here we go with the same old GMOs. Hi everyone, welcome to New Techniques, Same GMOs. I am so honored to be hosting this panel here today in partnership with the Non-GMO Project. My name is Rachel Parent. I'm a youth food and climate activist from Toronto, Ontario. And I am so excited to be here with such an incredible panel speaking about our food systems, health, biodiversity, and science. Today, we'll be diving a little bit more into the discussion of GMOs and even newer techniques like gene editing, asking the real questions that need to be asked and hearing from experts in the field. Today, I'm joined by Claire Robinson, Dr. Michael Antonio, Jim Thomas, Dr. Vandana Shiva, Jonathan Latham, and Megan Westgate. I'm going to jump to the panelists now and ask for a quick introduction before we jump straight into questions, uh, starting with Claire, if that's okay. Yes. Hi, everyone. I'm Claire Robinson. I'm editor at GM Watch, which is a website which tries to keep the public informed about issues around GM crops and foods and their associated pesticides. Yes, so I'm Dr. Michael Antonio. I head a group at one of... Um, the major universities in London, and I use a full spectrum of genetic engineering technologies, including gene editing, to address uh, clinical, uh, for clinical uses. Next, we'll jump to Jim. Hello, thank you very much, uh, Rachel, and the Non-GMO Project for this. Um, my name is Jim Thomas. I'm with a collective called the Etcetera Group. We're a small international research group, advocacy group. We track new technologies and also what corporations are up to, particularly around the food system, um, and try and understand uh, how those are gonna impact the rights of farmers, of indigenous peoples, uh, biodiversity, and so forth. That's great. Uh, next, we'll jump to Dr. Vandana Shiva. I'm uh, Vandana Shiva, originally trained as a physicist. I got into agriculture and seeds and GMOs, including the new GMOs because of the way the Green Revolution devastated the state of Punjab and did the book on the Green Revolution. And my journey on the GMOs began with a meeting organized by the Aghamajol Foundation and, and, uh, uh, in 1987, where the companies laid out their, their view of uh, why genetic engineering was the only way for them to get to patenting. Genetic engineering, old and new, has no other objective than owning life and controlling life and extracting rents and royalties from people. I really need to introduce Dr. Shiva to Victoria Gray. She's a mother of four, beautiful mother of four who had sickle cell disease. And I say had it because she doesn't anymore. She's been essentially cured using genetic engineering. Golden rice was to be given away without royalties, without rent, whatever that means. And uh, it has been stalled for years because of pushback against the technology. 
these are great examples of how this technology has done some very good things for people and just the tip of the iceberg. So her cynicism is really, you know, way off base. That's wonderful. Thank you. And we'll jump to Megan Westgate now. Thank you. I'm Megan Westgate. I'm the executive director of the Non-GMO Project. And the Non-GMO Project is a nonprofit organization that um, oversees North America's only third-party standard for GMO avoidance. So I've been doing this work for about 14 years, and my involvement began when I was working at a small food co-op in Tucson, Arizona. And as a shopper myself and watching our, um, our member owners coming in and, and shopping and looking for products, just saw how much confusion there was from people who were looking to avoid GMOs and didn't have a way to do that. So what we've done with the non-GMO project is created a rigorous testing-based standard, and we currently have more than 60,000 verified products in, that are sold in um, the U.S. and Canada. And so our mission really is to empower people to have an informed choice about what they eat and to preserve a non-GMO food supply for future generations. Now, that's really important for you to hear, that it's not just about package labels or information. It's about ensuring a non-GMO food supply for the future. So that tells you a lot about the non-GMO project. It's not just about uh, informed choice. It's about reshaping the way people can have access to food, even if that means higher prices from not being able to implement technology. So just keep that in mind as we go along. So uh, my name is Jonathan Latham. I am a molecular biologist and a virologist by training. Uh, I am also the co-founder of a nonprofit called the Bioscience Resource Project, which also is the publisher of the Independent Science News website, which covers science of food and agriculture. The entire goal of this panel today is to make sure that this information is as easily accessible as possible because we are talking about scientific issues, but at the end of the day, these issues are affecting every single one of us. They're affecting our food, our climate, and our entire uh, system that is yet to come. And the first question that I'd like to tackle today really is, what is the difference between gene editing and traditional GMOs? Uh, so I'd like to jump to Jonathan Latham first to answer this question. Now, this is a very simple question to answer. Any of my undergraduates can do it. Now, listen to the word salad you get from Latham as he attempts to describe what this technology is. And he doesn't emphasize what it is and what it can do and how it works. It's all about fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, well, you know, that's just not a simple question to answer, actually. But um, in the case of these new GMOs, gene-edited crops, there's a mixed bag of methodologies that people use. So just to describe CRISPR. So CRISPR is the, uh, the one that a Nobel Prize has won for the other day. That is the most discussed version of gene editing. And uh, the way that CRISPR works is that molecules are injected into living cells, one of which is a RNA molecule that finds a target in the genome, and the other is a protein that cuts DNA at the site of the target. So that is the theory. And, but the devil is in the details, right? It's what is added to the cell, uh, in what form is it added? Is it added as DNA? Is it added as protein? Is it added as uh, RNA? And then 
the whole host of questions of what follows from that. Like, for example, are there off-target effects and so forth? So, so what you really have to understand is that the term editing is kind of a PR term for what is going on. It's kind of a nice description of what is really quite a messy topic. Absolutely, and uh, it can get pretty messy, and that's why we need to have these discussions that are very open and understanding. Uh, I saw Megan put her hand up quickly. Uh, we'll jump to you next. And this is what you'll hear over and over again is messy. Oh, it's messy. It's a horrible thing that we don't know anything about. Off-target effects. It's, all, it's a mess. Um, you can assess that. We've done gene-edited crops where the only change that's there is that one single base change that we wanted. And you can do this by simply sequencing genomes, which is easy to do. It's very simple to look for off-target effects. There's very simple ways that you can assess that. And even if there are some off-target effects, it's much, much, much less, orders of magnitude less, than what happens during traditional breeding. So it's fear, uncertainty, and doubt that's being brought in around the idea of the uncertainties, the messiness of the process, which can be easily sorted out. I just wanted to say that broadly, a less nuanced way of answering it is that they are they're all types of in vitro nucleic acid techniques. So I know we're trying to understand what some of the nuances are, but I think it's also important to name right at the outset that there are fundamental things that are not different. It's all biotechnology. It's all genetic engineering. The products are GMOs. So in the non-GMO project standard, for example, we use the same definition of biotechnology that's used in the Cartagena protocol and in Codex, and it makes quite clear that all of these techniques are types of um, genetic engineering that create GMOs, and that's why we don't allow any of them in our standard. Um, and as John said, there, there are quite a number of varieties of techniques that fall under this umbrella. Well, I, th I think something that both um, Megan and Jonathan emphasize is, is really good to point to, that um, <clears throat> these are all varieties of genetic engineering. Um, the, the kind of old-fashioned, if you like, genetic engineering that's been around since the 1970s was Broadly, a couple of techniques, really two main techniques for cutting bits of DNA out of an organism and moving it across, sort of cut and paste. And that gene editing is one of a number of different genetic engineering techniques that have come along more recently, where you go in and you cut and you add extra things in a different way. But um, it's really more important to the industry, the biotech industry, to try and make these seem like different things. Um, because they're trying to get around some of the regulations and certainly the consumer concern. And the way they're doing it is by trying to create distance between the old genetic engineering techniques and the new genetic engineering techniques. Actually, it's still genetic. Well, the problem is, is that they are different techniques <laughs> and they have different outcomes. And the pr products that come from it are different. And that's why these folks are so nervous is because you're able to create the same changes that you can create using traditional breeding, only you use this biotechnology intermediate. And uh, this is a problem for all these folks because they see that their house of cards is starting to fall. So they'll attempt to paint these as being the same thing as transgenesis, where really it's not. And just being honest... They're two very different technologies. That's why they're described 
as two different technologies and two different outcomes. I just wanted to um, you know, further emphasize uh, what others have said very well, and that is that gene editing is a genetic modification procedure and therefore, by definition, gives rise to genetically modified organisms or, or GMOs. And the, the, um, the claim, as, as Jonathan mentioned earlier, of the gene editors is that unlike the old style, what we call gene addition transgenic GMOs that have been on the market since the 90s, is that they, they introduce a foreign gene cassette into the organism. It could be a plant or animal. And, but the procedure is, is, is random. You know, there's no control of where the foreign gene is inserted. Whereas the claim of the, uh, or what can happen through gene editing is that the, the genetic modification that you're introducing is, um, is supposed to be targeted, hence the term that they're using editing to give the idea of precision in terms of predict and predictability, predictability in terms of the outcome. But only certain uh, aspects of, uh, of the gene editing procedure um, result in... At least there's no intention, let's put it this way. The only, uh, only some of the outcomes from gene editing have the intention of not introducing foreign genetic material into the organism, but modifying the genetic material of the organism that's there, changing gene function that's already there rather than introducing a new foreign gene function. So this is an, uh, another distinction uh, of, of of uh, between the two, and I don't know whether, but as as Jonathan uh, implied quite clearly, that the proceed there are, there are many ways where this procedure of of uh, producing only the intended change can go wrong, many and many different ways in which it can go wrong, and therefore makes the whole claim of precision highly questionable. Maybe we can come back to that later. So that was a long-winded and rambling way of saying that we just don't know, you know, back to the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, uh, talking about off-target effects. Of course, much less than what happens when we do traditional breeding. And also, I think what we have to remember is that you can use gene editing to insert foreign genes, mm. can't you? Um, so this distinction that the industry tries to draw between old-style GM, where you're inserting foreign genes, and gene editing, where you supposedly are just tweaking genes that are already there, is actually false. I see this uh, distinction made all the time. You can use gene editing to insert foreign genes, and also you can use gene editing and unintentionally insert a foreign gene. So um, a number of things can go wrong. Of course, you can add genes with gene editing if you wanted to. You can do it. It doesn't work in all cases. The majority of the cases are used to make small deletions, and that's really the central focus of this technology. So, yes, again, it's the idea of, of in saying, look at, we just don't know. Look at the problems that you can create. It's all about creating fear, uncertainty, and doubt.
So that leads me to my next question of what the concerns are with gene editing. And we've heard a lot about the concerns surrounding GMOs, whether that be biosafety, whether that be uh, affecting biodiversity, um, environmental health concerns, whether the sci uh, science itself is sound. And I guess that leads me to asking, what do you believe the concerns around gene editing and traditional GMOs would be? That's to me, is it, Richard? Yes. <laughs> Certainly, thank you. Um, there are um, basically the, the, the unintended effects that can happen from gene editing are, as Jonathan mentioned, uh, it will, with using the CRISPR gene editing tool as an illustration. The idea is that you, you target a genetic modification. Now, the, the initial step in the vast majority, the, the CRISPR system has been adapted for a number uh, in a, to bring about genetic alterations in a, uh, of different types. But in the vast majority of cases and how it is intended to be used in agriculture, the, the gene editing tool like CRISPR is that it produces, a, a, first of all, it produces a cut. It breaks the DNA at, a at your predetermined location, what we call a double-strand DNA break. And however, the, and then the editing happens after that, not because the gene editing tool does it, by the way. The editing happens as a result of activating the cell's DNA repair mechanisms. Yeah. So after the gene editing tool has actually finished its task is when the edit, so the editing takes place. So when you hear in the media or whatever, oh, CRISPR does this, edits this, does that, actually CRISPR isn't doing anything like that at all. All it's doing is cutting the DNA and then you're at the mercy of the cell's DNA repair mechanisms to try to bring about what you intend in terms of the actual edit to the DNA. But the, but the, the thing about the, the, the targeting of the cut is that there are a number of unintended outcomes. First of all, the CRISPR tool may cut the DNA of the organism at unintended locations, what are known as off-target cuts. And to date, the emphasis has been on, and this is what you hear people in an agricultural context say, if we can simply avoid these off-target cuts in the genome of the plant, then we'll only get what we want, and therefore there's nothing to worry about. But actually, what's ha what has been discovered in more recent years is that there are numerous types of unintended mutations, even at the intended gene editing event large deletions, large rearrangements of DNA that can affect the functioning of multiple genes. What does that mean? Affect altering the pattern of gene function means you alter the plant biochemistry, and as a consequence of altering the plant biochemistry, you run the high risk, in my opinion, of producing novel toxins and allergens. So this, for me, uh, is really uh, the, the, the primary health concerns for me, and which when you take these, these, thing, uh, these outcomes, it both off-target and on unintended on-target mutations, the claims of precision and predictability go out the window. Now, here's a good question. How do you know that there's these rearrangements? Well, it's because you can find them. You can detect them. You can determine if there were off-target effects. That's how he knows they're there. And so you can find the ones that are not appropriate and don't use those. 
it's really very simple. You stick with the ones that are precise. And the idea of creating novel toxins and allergens. So out of a plant, just by having a single gene change, the fact that there would uh, be something created that would be novel, um, that wasn't already there, eh, possible, but very unlikely. It's just more of the same kind of thing. And you see the pattern. It's all about casting nervousness on a new technology. It also should be noted that while CRISPR uh, gene editing was the original type that was done, CRISPR-Cas9, new technologies are much more precise. And the new versions of gene editing are even better with creating fewer off-target mutations. So much of this uh, discussion goes out the window with people who know what they're talking about. I think it's important to, it's really great to hear and we'll hear more about, I think, the, the sort of unintended impacts of, uh, of cutting, manipulating, and disrupting at this genetic level which is involved here. I think it's also worth just keeping in the frame the intended impacts. Um, you know, what this is about, just as GMOs, the first generation of GMOs were about, was a very deliberate intention by large agribusiness players um, to, to reshape our global food system. Um, and we saw that with the first genetically modified organisms, which were very intentionally about letting large chemical companies take control of our food system. We heard about Monsanto and Syngenta and so forth. Um, and they did so very successfully. Whether the technology worked or not, it definitely worked in building the power of these, these large corporate players in the food system. Gene editing is, uh, is, is part of the same and more. Um, it, uh, what we're seeing now is some of those same multi-billion dollar players, who, and there's now only four of them in, in the agribusiness sector, it's, it's Bayer, it's Corteva, it's Syngenta and BASF, um, are being joined by multi-trillion dollar companies, the, the big data giants, the, uh, the machinery companies like John Deere, um, in an entirely new vision for the food system, um, in which they're once again using this technology, uh, CRISPR technology, and, and other gene editing technologies to try and gain control over not just food, but biodiversity and life more generally. So there's a very clear way in which just as they tried to use GMOs to reshape the food system, they're now using the gene editing technology with other digital technologies to, to reshape the food system and how we do things like conservation. And it's, it's a massive power grab. So that's the intended effect. And we mustn't lose sight of that. They forgot about this. They're, um, they go spinning out into uh, the uh, Gates conspiracies and all this stuff over the uh, course of this discussion. So you'll hear more of that as we go on, that this is all you know, multi-trillion dollar uh, data and technology companies. Keep that in mind. Um, it, it gets pretty weird. And uh, I think it's Vandana Shiva who has her email on, who keeps getting new messages. And someone's got a really squeaky chair. But if you're up for it, maybe this is a good time to do a shot of tequila every time you hear the word Monsanto and every time you hear the word Bill Gates. And you won't be standing by the end of this, uh, this segment. I think three quick things on, uh, on the regulation issue. The European Court of Justice rules that gene-edited organisms are GMOs and need to be, go through all the biosafety that any GMO has to be regulated through. If we watch the Brexit debate on the new farm bill where they sneaked in gene-edited crops for deregulation 
and there was an outrage. And basically, the House of Lords is as good as struck down those clauses, but the government will try and override. The U.S. has decided to treat gene-edited crops as natural. And this is the interesting thing, that around the time, I mean, this is a very young tool. And its birth, of course, is, is what got the Nobel Prize for, Eman, uh, for Emmanuel and Jennifer Doudna. Now, Jennifer Doudna has been funded in a big way by Bill Gates, but so has the Broad Institute in Cambridge. And then there were massive patent battles between Doudna and Zhang. And the interesting thing about the Nobel is it is not given by biology. It is not given for medicine. We, you know, medicine is where the biology discoveries go. This is given for chemistry. So in effect, they're admitting what Michael was saying. This is only about adding some molecules. It is not about being able to make life. Now, not only are there massive patents, if you look at the first company that used gene editing with false claims that they were making low trans fat soybean, when the trans fat comes from the solvent extraction process and the hydrogenation process of oil, they have 76 patents on CRISPR and, and 178 patents on the talent technique of gene editing. Uh, it's all a patent race. When you realize how just throwing the light makes them withdraw, the company that make, made the, um, the canola, the minute John Fagan and his team did the new tests that showed that even one editing could be tested for, they suddenly went underground because their claim of being natural did not hold. The final thing I want to say quickly is actually Bill Gates and other billionaires, and all the billionaires are in this game of gene editing. They've invested 120 million in a, in a new company called Editas, founded by Feng Jiang of the Broad Institute, and all of Silicon Valley is in it, as is the person who used to be the Gates Science Advisor, who has Boris Nikolik, who has a company book called BNGO, which is bio-nano-geno. Now, all of the tech barons have started new companies on life sciences. And there is this big rush to pretend that you're doing something new. And that, I think, is what we should discuss, that the, the scrambling of the tree of life, scrambling of the sophisticated self-organization of a genome is not doing anything except scrambling. And that's why you have the unintended side effects. Um, and I think it's that big picture of where is the economic interest, the commercial interest, and what are the ethical and ecological implications of pretending it's a precise technology and they've invented life itself all over again. Uh, these are the issue, issues that every citizen should be following. Wow, that was a word salad. And really is unsure where, where she's going with that, other than saying that this is just a way for the tech giants to 
uh, get their fingers in the pie. And I suppose that's good because it's a pie that has some potential in medicine and agriculture and many aspects of how we can do good things for the planet in a very directed way. Yet she shrouds it in fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Amazing. And next I'll jump to Jonathan to answer the question. So, so they, you know, I want to go to the genome scrambling issue that, that Vandana has raised because it also extends what Michael raised at the beginning which is that when you insert these molecules into cells, you don't actually know what you're putting into those cells, in the, in basically in every case. Well, actually, you know exactly what you're putting in because you put it in. <laughs> you designed it, and you did the experiment. Now, where if it only goes where you think it goes, that's something you have to figure out after the fact. And what we wrote about recently is how researchers have shown that when you add these molecules that do your editing, you also end up adding a lot of other material from other species. And that material gets ended up being inserted into the genome of the organism that you think you are precisely editing. So we showed that when you have a cow genome or a mouse genome, for example, you can end up adding cow DNA to the mouse genome, goat DNA to the mouse genome, E. coli DNA to the mouse genome. So all of these things have been shown to happen in gene editing methods. How are you putting cow DNA in the mice or mice DNA in the cows unless you're explicitly placing it there, which is what you would be trying to do if that were the case? I guess I don't understand where he goes with this line of thinking. And so what, my, what Michael emphasizes about the lack of precision in terms of, you know, where the enzymes cut and where the targeting happens and what happens after that cutting process, so all of that has to be added. This whole other level of confusion and basically scrambling, as Van Dunen says, of the genome that essentially is going, flying under the radar because people are not looking properly for these things. And this is very concerning to me. But this is always the question, is they say that it happens, there's a scrambling, which is not the case. Scrambling is what happens when you try doing uh, traditional breeding, which is general mixing of two genomes that don't necessarily belong together. Even two different corn genotypes can be very different. But the genome editing process has some level of precision that you're able to direct at least where to where this needs to go. There's, I really question the question, the assertion of large scale genome scrambling. I don't know that I've ever seen any evidence of that. Absolutely, and I'll jump to Jim Thomas next. Yeah, I, I think it's really helpful to point this stuff out. I mean, it's it's really ironic that the um, the Nobel Prize, which was which is endowed by um, the inventor of dynamite, Alfred Nobel, is now being given to some people who designed a technique that's basically the TNT of DNA. It's, you know, it's throwing dynamite into the web of life. This kind of scrambling um, of the web of life that's happening, whether at the genetic level by this kind of random uh, scrambling that's happening, or more significantly as this technology uh, um, is employed, and we'll talk later about gene drives, technology will, both through industrial agriculture and through specific techniques such as gene drives, really disturb and, and, and break apart the web of life. Uh, we had Van Dana talking about the tree of life earlier. 
Um, it, it's kind of ironic that that's you know there's this link straight through from the old dynamite to this new genetic dynamite. Genetic dynamite. So you can see how the rhetoric has ramped up over the course of just the first 20 minutes of this discussion. It's gone from something that creates a few off-site effects to genetic dynamite and complete scrambling of genomes. None of that has ever been shown. Off-target effects, certainly. But there's nothing that shows a wholesale rearrangement of the genome using gene editing. Absolutely, and that brings me to the next question. These foods could potentially be reaching our markets or may already be on our markets, and that's what I'd like to clear up next. Uh, what are examples of food that are already being experimented with? Where can people find it on the marketplace? There are two main uh, gene-edited crops that are on the market at the moment. Now, one of these has recently been disavowed by its developer. Um, Cebus says that it's uh, gene-edited um, herbicide-tolerant canola is in fact not gene-edited after all. And they said this, as has been mentioned before, as soon as a detection method was found for it. Um, so that's still a kind of ongoing debate. However, we can say that Cebus has claimed for many, many years that this canola is indeed gene-edited. So we'll see what comes of that. Well, we'll have to see what comes of that. Actually, what Claire's talking about, she's wrong as usual. Uh, Cebus created a line of canola with a, with a mutation in the AHAS1C gene. And this is a gene that encodes something called acetohydroxy acid synthase. And this is an um, enzyme that is required for, uh, is an herbicide target for sulfonylurea herbicides and other types of herbicides. And so if you can mutate this gene, then it is not sensitive to the herbicide. Now you could do it by gene editing, but they did it by a different method. They did it by good old mutation breeding. And it says so in all their papers that this isn't gene edited. This is before gene editing. This stuff goes back to 2011, where they were able to create this probably in tissue culture, um, where you would select on the presence of uh, different herbicide compounds to find stuff that would survive it. And in this case, you would find uh, the canola plants that had mutations in this gene. Now, there was a lot of fanfare around this study that came out that said we can detect this difference. It's not such a big deal. We could do it anytime. It's very simple. Yet, this Greenpeace-funded study was considered some sort of tool and smoking gun that would uh, work against gene editing. It, it, but that's the beauty of this. It shows the precision that can be achieved in different biotechnological breeding techniques. Um, there's also a soybean uh, made by Calix, which has an altered fat profile. And um, they've altered the fats in order that it doesn't produce uh, trans fats, dangerous trans fats, during the, um, the process by which they, they make various industrial foods. Um, so this we consider to be uh, not exactly a, a crop that is important in feeding the world or solving any kind of problem. It's basically um, a, a crop that is created for industrial needs, the making of junk food. 
And uh, the other one is, is, is canola, which is herbicide tolerant and will enable more herbicide to be sprayed on that crop. And therefore, it's very much um, in the old tradition of GMOs that don't benefit the consumer, don't benefit the farmer necessarily, but they simply benefit an industrialized food system that isn't particularly healthy to, to begin with. And it's just propping that system up. Well, let's talk a little bit about this. So Calix created the hyaluric soybean oil. And what the hyaluric soybean oil allows is for it to be used with more resilience in frying, meaning that you can use it um, up to three times longer to be able to prepare food. And so there's a sustainability metric there. It's better for companies. You're creating less waste, all the good stuff there. Um, that's really the main place for this soybean oil. It's a food service product. So when she says junk food, that's what she's going for. I disagree with the idea that, that these uh, products don't serve farmers. Because if they don't serve farmers, farmers don't buy them. Just to sh share some perspective of how we look at this in the non-GMO project. So um, because of the proliferation of these new te techniques, um, we actually have two full-time researchers on staff who a large part of what they're doing is watching the new, the explosion of biotech companies because that's incredible to see. Um, just for some context on that, we've seen in the last few years a 250% increase in the number of different companies doing biotech. Um, as others have pointed to, there's a lot of money in this and a lot of incentive to play in this space. So, we now have over 400 companies that we're tracking on an ongoing basis to see what are they developing. A lot of different inputs, everything from different proteins, fragrances, flavors. Um, it, it just covers the whole gamut. But in terms of things that are actually commercially available, those we reflect in the Nanjumo Project Standard, which is publicly available. And we have a high-risk list at the end of the standard that identifies um, all of the things that are widely commercially available in GMO form and that we therefore consider to be high risk. Well, this is really interesting because she's really saying that there is a huge number of companies that are now entering into this space. And when you have this kind of technology that democratizes the availability of these new technologies, these new, you know, new techniques, it radically changes the landscape that's there. It's not just four companies in this anymore. It's hundreds. They also talk about the high-risk group. And what exactly that means is strictly something in the non-GMO projects, you know, in, in, in their little universe. There is no risk above traditional ingredients from regular food. The ingredients are the same. There's no additional risk. It's up to the company that puts the sticker on the box and collects a fee for it to imply that there's risk. And where possible, where the testing technology is available, we require testing of those things. But increasingly, we're having to track items that we don't yet have um, commercially available tests for. And we use um, other mechanisms, mainly affidavits, um, to... Yeah. 
keeping those inputs out of our program. And, and so the crops that are on our list right now, as Claire said, we're, we're, um, we've got soy and canola on there, um, and also potato, which is developed with RNA interference. And um, that, depending on your definition of gene editing, may or may not fall in this discussion, but just to note that it is something that is not um, currently testable, and so we do track it with other mechanisms to make sure that it doesn't get used in non-GMO project verified products. Um, but just the increased focus on this, when the, when the project started 14 years ago, the list of things we were watching was relatively small, and it's just, I can't emphasize enough what a sea change it is happening right now in terms of the increase in development of how many crops and inputs are being impacted. And as a standard setting organization that has accountability for ensuring public trust and making sure that these inputs are staying out of products with the butterfly, our job has gotten way harder. I mean, we're up for the challenge, we're doing it, but it's incredibly complicated now compared to even a few years ago. And I've got news for you, it's only gonna get worse. That now as time goes on, where new crops are being developed, using gene editing. There's more and more of them all the time, and we're using traditional breeding as a guide. What are the polymorphisms that have been observed in different populations that now can be installed using gene editing? You won't be able to tell them from those that are occurring from mutational insertions, just like happened with the Cebus canola. Good luck. And that even points out the amount of corporate control over our food system and the amount of patents that continue to go up it's a wonderful profit uh, scheme for a lot of these corporations, but it does make the work of those who are trying to eat healthier or avoid GMOs much more difficult. And then the question arises, is patenting food even something that's ethical or moral? Is patenting things that are already out in nature, animals, plants, um, something that should be done? And that's where I'd like to ask the question, uh, should corporations be allowed to patent food? What are the scientific assumptions that are making in terms of genetically modifying the food that we're eating? And I'll jump to Vandana. Hold on. Jump to me first before you go to Vandana. Nobody's patenting food. Nobody's patenting food. They're patenting technology that's going into the seeds that are being grown to create ingredients that go into your food. And those technologies allow farmers to be able to create more product with fewer inputs. So using less fertilizer, less insecticide, this is really important stuff. And so that is what is going on. I don't think that's terribly unethical. Yeah. So the, first of all, the assumption that uh, you can patent anything derived from a living organism or the organism itself is based on an ontological flaw that a living organism is not living. It is just an assemblage and it's an assemblage put together from outside. Now, this has been the subject of many cases. Uh, I've had to deal with it in India. Uh, there was a US case where a farmer called Bauman lost against Monsanto where the Supreme Court of the U.S. ruled that a seed is a self-replicating machine. The very famous case of Percy Spicer, whose farms, farm was contaminated, and there's now a new film out on Percy. But I think it's extremely important to go back to the roots of 
A, the reductionism that life is just a collection of atoms and uh, atoms of determinism and that it's as a machine made through tools of genetic engineering or you know, old or new can be patented. Most people don't remember that the word gene was created long before the DNA strands were actually worked out. And it was created by the Rockefeller Foundation and their associates to hide eugenics. The name used to be social psychology. And it was about control. It was really about eugenics. And Lily Kay, in her molecular vision of life, has not just gone through how this construction of reductionism was created, but that is then the foundation of pretending to have invented and owned. But from 1953 onwards, and I think for Michael, this was, you know, he'd have a lot to say, all but one Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine was awarded to research sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation. So we should look at how the Nobel Prize to Duda, sponsored by the Gates, we should be ready. There will be many Nobel Prizes now related to this gene editing. So the idea of patenting was introduced in the WTO trips. We fought it, we stopped it, and we, we created exceptions. Because life is not an invention. Indian law says plants, animals, seeds, and anything derived from there are not invention and therefore cannot be patentable. And it's a very foundational shift in our thinking because just at the time where we need to recover our ability to think of life in its self-organizing capacity, life in its diversity, that is precisely the time this idea of owning life and owning food is being imposed through all kinds of literal scams and it costs farmers. Monsanto didn't have a patent, but it extracted money and pushed farmers to suicide. So it can make farmers lose lives. It destroys businesses. But the kind of power that comes with patenting, that's how Monsanto became so big as a seed player. But that's how the tech giants through patents on software are now driving the patents on gene editing. And that's where the editor's company fits in. It's designed to have patents on editing of life itself. And life, I always say, but life is not a software program and it's not a word program. It is a sophisticated, complex self-organizing system. And as Michael said so clearly, what is really happening is the healing capacity and repairing capacity of the organism itself. The shooting is happening through the new gene editing, as it was happening through the old gene editing with gene guns and agrobacterium. So it's a, it's a scandal to try and pretend that you have created life and food, which is an embodiment of life. And this, you know, this is what has been my dedication now for the last 33 years. But this is what the world should be waking up to. This is a, what we need to address if there's going to be a future and there's going to be freedom. And I would just mention uh, that I have a book called Oneness Versus 1%, which tracks some of it. But more importantly, with Claire's contribution, Michael's contribution, and Jim's contribution, and Jonathan's contribution, uh, and many others who are engaged in different parts, we are bringing out a report on what is the state of the world and what's the state of the philanthropists 
on the 14th of this month. And we should build from this discussion to building a much longer, large, larger right to freedom of having safe food, right of the seed to not be patented, rights of farmers to save exchange seed, rights of consumers to not be cheated. I'm never impressed by her clarity of thought. <laughs> uh, you know, she mentions Schmeiser and Bauman and the folks who stole seeds. They stole technology and they were caught doing it. And they were tried in court and shown to have stolen seeds. You need to have royalties and protection on inventions. And new varieties are inventions, whether they come from biotechnology or traditional breeding. You need to have those protections because how do you incentivize creating the next generation if there's no money to do it? When you patent something, you create a funding stream to continue the innovation and improvement. That's why we have to do it. I, I just think something that Van Danish said there is really worth underlining that the role of the tech companies in pushing this technology, um, and I think this is maybe surprising to those who are used to thinking about genetic engineering as being uh, Monsanto or seed companies and so forth. Um, you know, the, the, this technology, whether it's gene editing or the broader area of what's called synthetic biology, is seen as a digital technology. Underlying it is this idea, as, as Vandana says, that it's, uh, you know, the, the seed is a machine. It can be programmed at the level of the genetic level, and this is the way you're going to do the programming. And, um, and when you look across, of course, the tech companies are interested. They are the most powerful, cash-rich um, players in the world right now. They're multi-trillion-dollar companies. They're looking for places to put their cash. And if they look at the food system, the food system is somewhere between eight and ten trillion dollars. It's maybe about a fifth of the global economy. Um, if they can find a set of techniques backed by patents that let them get in and become major players over food, which everybody buys every day. Um, and people depend upon, and that life depends upon, of course they're going to do that. That's what's going on at the moment. Jonathan, I'll jump to you quickly. Hi, I just want to say a word in support of what Vandana just said in terms of biology, right? We, we have this habit of reducing life to DNA, you know, in our conversation and so forth, in our scientific thinking, and I totally want to express my support for Vandana's idea that life is so much more than DNA. Self cells and organisms are self-organizing systems, and they are not reducible to DNA, but that doesn't mean that you can't make a horrible mess of them by changing their DNA, right? But what it does mean is that you can't just add new traits to organisms and expect that that's simply going to happen at your whim and wish. And so what's going to happen with this new gene editing technology is people are going to attempt all kinds of bold and interesting procedures and, and aim for all these bold and exciting results. But what they're going to end up with time and again is messes. And this is what happened with the first gen generation of genetic engineering. As soon as people try to do anything more than the most simplest basic change of adding a toxin, for example, to a cell, to a, to a species, to a crop plant, they ended up by basically failing to do what they wanted to do because they bought into this whole ideology of just change the DNA and you can alter the organism and you control life and so on and so forth. 
And that whole ideology is not correct. Biologically, it is totally false and falsifiable. So I really want to say that, you know, Bandon is not a molecular biologist, and what she says may sound outlandish to people, but really it's biologically entirely correct. I think now would be a great time to get into some of the things that corporations have told us that simply aren't true. Uh, we've constantly been told that GMOs and gene editing are the answer for feeding the world. Feeding the world is hyperbole. It's not about feeding the world. It's about pro- providing solutions for specific problems around the world, helping farmers, helping the food insecure. That is where these technologies have an application. To distill it down to a throwaway statement like feed the world is so typical of these people. And now in more recent months, we've been told that gene editing is the solution for climate change uh, and will help to actually preserve biodiversity. What causes these claims to fall short and what is the actual truth that we're not being told by these big corporations? And I'll jump to Claire first. Thank you. Yeah, the claim about GM going to feed the world and now gene editing is going to feed the world and save us all from climate change is complete nonsense. Um, The problem with this claim is really that there is no shortage of food production. We currently produce enough food to feed up to 14 billion people. And that's according to experts that advise the World Bank Institute. Um, That's more food than we will ever need, even at peak population in 2050. So we're producing huge amounts of food, and that even applies to the countries where people go hungry. Uh, There is a lot of food that is produced, but a lot of it goes to waste because there are no storage facilities or no infrastructure to get it to the people who need it. Um, Overwhelmingly, the major cause of hunger is poverty and also political unrest. Wherever there are wars or big displacements of people or natural disasters, you get famines. Um, And also there's the fact that in the West, in the affluent countries, we're actually throwing away 40% of our food. So food waste is a huge problem in all countries, in fact. So really we don't need to produce more food. And even if we did, GM does not create higher yields. There is no GM gene high yield. I have to stop it there. You know, the old idea of going back to, well, we already have enough food is a totally bogus argument because people are still hungry. And it may be because of logistics and storage and civil unrest. But that's why we need more technology, not less. You're actually making an argument for technology. Right now, we don't have the technology in those places. And that could be used to mitigate some of the reasons why people are having problems finding food. And yes, the yields increase. They do. There's no gene for yields, but you find that the numbers go up, especially in marginal areas where uh, the genes can have bigger effects, such as places where there is heavy insect populations. Uh, High yield is due to a mixture of things, including background genetics of the crops, Um, That's a product of conventional breeding and also how you treat the soil, um, what kind of weather conditions you've got, how good a farmer you are. All these things go go into producing good yields of crops. So um, this is even admitted by proponents of GM, such as the the U.S. government. 
even they say that GM is not a way to create higher yields. So uh, really, it's, it's an incredibly successful myth in some ways that the, the biotech industry has promoted over many, many years. And many people just repeat it um, unquestioningly. But it is a myth and it's false. And at that point, I think uh, Jim would like to say something. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's some, there's some bigger myths to take apart. Um, you know, the, the more important question is who does feed the world? Um, we know it's not really biotech companies. Who it is is small peasant farmers. Um, and, and peasant and small-scale farmers feed 70% of the world. And they do it on 25% of the world's land and, and agricultural land and, and resources. Um, and and that's, that's a, something to really reflect on. You know, the, the real food security... And this is a this is what the FAO says. In fact, the FAO says eighty percent is I think the, the, the statistic they use of the world is fed by small farmers. Um, is eighty percent of the world being fed by the smallest farmers on on using peasant agriculture, which is which is generally speaking very low input, very um, low carbon. It's not that's not what's affecting creating climate change. Um, that's the system that works. And um, I, I would really point people towards this book. Who Will Feed Us, which is a report that etc. Group brings out every few years where we track, you know, who, who really does feed the world. And those are the folks that we wish to serve. How do you give them better technology use, improved varieties, fewer inputs, um, plants that can have more resilience in response to insect or climate threats? This is the idea behind the technology of gene editing or genetic engineering, for that matter, is to help the poorest farmers get more with the time and input they put in. There still is food insecurity. And even though small farmers produce a lot, they still can do more. The, the problem with gene editing and GMOs is it's not part of that peasant food web that really feeds the world. It's about the industrial food chain. And the converse of this is also true. The, the industrial food chain uses up 75% um, of, of the agricultural land and resources and feeds almost nobody. Feeds almost nobody uses 75% of the land and resources and feeds almost nobody. Wow, these folks are really sharp. And so beefing up that industrial food chain through gene editing, even if they could push up yields, even if they can use digital things, is the wrong way to go. And um, in fact, this is about that food, that food chain taking over some of the land and knowledge of, of the peasant food web. So we have to step back and see, you know, which is the system we should be supporting. What Jim said is so true, uh, and I would say that given that the industrial system is not a food system, it is a commodity system, and once you start turning the products of the earth into commodities to do everything under the sun, make biofuel, feed animals, uh, there was a GM potato, they wanted to use it for making furniture um, because there was a fight against GM foods in Europe. Um, and Percy and I went and protested at that uh, trial site. If we were to add the burning of the Amazon for GMO soya, we are going way beyond 75%. We are talking about a new expansionism. So the combination of the fact that these are reckless technologies, as Jim said, the TNT at the level of the, of the genome, own organizing, 
that it is not about producing food and the expansionism basically means first and foremost you're going to aggravate hunger positively you definitely will not produce more food the bt cotton example in india is now so well studied and established yields went down they didn't go up she's right that that we're able to create commodities by scaling up because of technology and when you talk about using it using plants as renewable fuel and biofuels or making them into furniture that's actually kind of a good thing i don't know what's wrong with that she also mentions that BT cotton did not increase yields, and yes, it did. When you look at the papers by Cathage and Came from 2012, Proceedings of the National Academies of Science, they looked at this very precisely in different areas of India, and they were able to show that BT led to a 24% increase in cotton yield per acre and 50% profit increase for those farmers that grew it. So Shiva's wrong again, and she always is. It just is amazing that people listen to her. And now all scientists are admitting it's the indigenous seeds, it's the organic seeds, it's the farmer bread seeds, which are the only way you can manage pests and actually increase yields. But the other part of this story is climate change. Just like yield is uh, a result of a complex relationship of multiple traits, climate resilience is a result of multiple traits. It's a multiple genes and you know, it's a multi-genetic trait. And therefore talking about cut, paste and one, one, uh, one gene will fix this is just at a system level so flawed. At the level of uh, the last GMOs, they never could do climate resilience. What they do, did was pirate the climate resilient seeds that farmers had evolved of salt tolerance. And we saved these in Nathania the salt tolerant seeds, the flood tolerant seeds, and then just play, with, and we did a, a report together, etc., in Navania on the biopiracy of climate resilient seeds, on how, because now they're reducing life to digital reading and genomics. They're now using algorithms to decide and play lottery to decide which part of the genome might have the contribution to which trait. And then they talk about lottery tickets, yeah, which will win this patent battle. So we are really in a big gamble. This is what happens when people who have a thin understanding of the science are introduced to a complicated topic like genome-wide selection. That's what she's referring to, that it's just a big gamble. It's a, you know, You're taking a piece of the genome and moving it. And that's what's happening through traditional breeding, but guided by genomic selection, where we're able to look at the entire genome and move a specific piece based on molecular markers. This is nothing different than a precise overlay to traditional breeding. Yet, she still doesn't like this either, and I don't understand why. Well, probably because the big biotech companies do it. That's probably it. And the problem really is Big tech has all the propaganda machine. It has all the censorship machine. Most importantly, it has now hijacked all of the research systems. And our new report in Gates will show that there is no independent research. There's no public research anymore. It's Gates research. What Rockefeller was for the period of, you know, Hitler onwards, standard IG carbon, standard oil IG carbon. What Rockefeller was for that period of the last century, Gates is for right now. And it is the new Monsanto. It is the new Columbus. 
And we need to be watching and not look very, very narrowly at old uh, separations because this integration is so fast and so complex. So it is an issue of, of power and control and totalitarianism. People are looking too much at authoritarianism in the puppets they have put in power. Those puppets are not in control. The real totalitarians are those who want to control the food we eat. And this is where everyone who cares about democracy and freedom should be looking. There is no independent research, except for that that's going on at independent research universities all over the world. You know, she really goes out on a limb to disparage the science because a few people play in that space that she doesn't like. It's really unfortunate. I also really just think the whole spin-out into the Rockefellers and Gates thing is such a distraction. Um, and with that in mind, we've talked about feeding the world. We've talked about how the environmental impacts of these foods could have negative effects for generations to come. Once genetic pollution is out in the world, there's simply no recalling it. And that's one of the greatest concerns with gene editing. And now, uh, as of recently, a Nobel Peace Prize was awarded uh, to people who are working on CRISPR technologies. Um, and I was wondering more about how you felt about that and what the future of GE and gene editing technologies are. Because as we've, we've talked about these concerns, um, when they were awarded the prize, and I'm reading this, one of the quotes that was said is, this is the year of rewriting the code of life. And that's exactly what many corporations now have in mind. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And what is the role of GE Foods in the future going forward? The simple answer to that is I see absolutely no role, no positive role at all in gene editing in the food production system, crop or animal. I'll give you one. Porcine respiratory and reproductive virus. This is a syndrome that's caused by uh, a viral disease in pigs. It's, it's devastating. But they've gene edited the receptor for the virus, so now you can't get the disease. It's going to be a game changer for swine production. So it's a very positive thing for animals. Other ones uh, exist in that same kind of uh, notion of being able to protect animals from disease through gene editing. Hum humans, too. I mean, after all, we're just animals. So... I disagree with Dr. Antonio on that particular point. Where, where I see a possibility, once we sort out, the, to quote a heading in Nature, the chromosomal mayhem that can result from CRISPR gene editing technology, there may be some clinical use for targeting certain diseases. Uh, uh, somatic, I don't mean germline here for addressing genetically inherited diseases uh, to help people, certain to target that where it can be really, where you have a real problem uh, to try to solve. But in an agricultural context, they, the, the problem doesn't line the genetics of the plant. And as has been put, said very eloquently by Jim and Vandana and, and, and Jonathan, the the, all the, the, the desirable traits of a, of a plant or an animal is what we call complex traits. And we now know whether that be yield, better nutrition, pathogen resistance, disease resistant, 
saline resistant, heat tolerance, you know, all these highly desirable traits that we would like to have in our plants are complex traits. And we now know that complex traits have the totality of the functioning of the genome at their basis. They are what are called omnigenic traits. Omni, totality genetics. Omnigenics, totality genetics. So to go in and think you can tweak this gene here and tweak that gene there and think you can uh, impart on it an enhanced yield or an enhanced resilience to some climate uh, stressor is just total utter fantasy. Unless it's not. Um, good examples like the MLO gene in barley that confers resistance to powdery mildew when it's edited. There are many other examples that you could think about where genes that are removed or changed do confer resilience to climatic stress. Um, it's not a real big surprise. It amazes me that here's somebody who claims to be a scientist who misses the very simple science. And more than that, you're going to create a disaster. Why? Because we know that life as a whole, this is again what Vandana was, was saying, life as a whole that is greater than the sum of the parts. And that principle of wholeness is functioning at every level of life, from the genes upwards. What that tells you is, is that you, and you cannot predict the functioning of the whole by studying the parts. But also, if you change a part, you're going to have repercussions through the functioning of the whole, that in a totally unpredictable way, because you cannot predict the whole from studying the parts. And so any attempt at enhancing the qualities of our foods in a, through gene editing or even transgenic gene addition technology uh, is bound to fail. You are, you are literally, you're living in a world of fantasy. And it's a dangerous fantasy because the consequences are, are going to be catastrophic. So, you know, what we're going to see is a tremendous amount of hype, right? Especially on the back of this Nobel Prize and everything, right? Like, you know, they, the, the whole rewriting of the code of life, you're going to see all this hype. And Megan has already implied there's all these startup companies and so forth that are, you know, doing things. There are big companies who are often behind these startup companies who, are, who are, have all these incredible plans, but there's going to be a disconnect between the height and what they can actually achieve, right? This is the classic story of the water-efficient maze from Africa, right? What they essentially did in developing this maze is they took indigenous and, and, and farmer-saved seeds and they put a transgene in it and then they claimed that their water efficiency was a product of the transgene, right? Which it wasn't. It was a, just a pro, it was a product of the seeds that were bred naturally. And then the, the, the transgene is in there to basically create intellectual property rights and to give the credit to the GMO. Not quite. Um, once again, Jonathan gets it wrong. The WEMA project was done uh, throughout Africa, in Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, um, the idea was to use water-efficient local varieties, which they have, 
and continued to breed them. And they continued to breed and produce better varieties. They also added the BT gene so they would have resistance to stem borers and fall armyworm, which is a significant problem in the area. And by adding that transgene, we're able to realize over 30% higher yields with no insecticide application. Uh, this is a real big step forward. So there is a genetic engineering event, but it's the safe and useful BT trait, and it works against the pests of the region. And it makes water-efficient maize not just water-efficient, but also resistant to insects. And you're going to see this huge disconnect. There's going to be a huge amount of money behind this hype. There's going to be a huge amount of hype. But then if you delve properly, carefully, and cautiously into the science, into the research, into the actual results of the in-farmers' fields, you'll find that there's next to nothing there. This is the story of traditional GMOs, and it will continue to be the story of gene editing, in my view. Thank you. And uh, I'll jump to Jim now to talk a little bit more about the future of uh, gene-edited foods as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, so at etc. Group, we've been uh, engaged in something called the long food movement, where we're trying to do a 25-year scan ahead of, of what's happening to our global food systems, um, which is necessarily speculative, but it's always interesting to look at what the industry thinks it's going to be doing in the next 25 years. And um, so there's, and, and looking at that, you see some some very interesting trends which are, which are relevant to gene editing. So the first is, and we've seen this conversation already, the biotech industry, the food industry too, does not want to talk about GMOs anymore. Um, they want to use techniques, and gene editing is one of them, but there are others too, that let them do what they're doing before, mess around with the genome uh, and, and so forth, without using the GMO term. So while we're talking now about gene editing and CRISPR, um, we're going to talk more and more about RNA. We're going to talk more and more about transient expression. Um, there's, there's going to be more and more of these technologies. And I think it's important to, to, to not get lost on the individual technologies, but to see we're going to see a lot of genetic engineering approaches, which they'll try to say are non-GMO. So, so that's one thing we're going to see. So you mean that scientists will be speaking with precision about the techniques that they're using? that they're going to speak specifically about the ways in which DNA has changed and the methods that are used to create those changes. That's a good thing. You see, it's the activists that lump everything together into a bundle called GMO, which is not a scientific term. It's a bogus term because even traditional breeding is a genetic modification. What it is is it's just another way to create an overall overarching term which can be applied to technologies that are used by the companies that these folks don't like. The technology is just fine. And scientists are speaking about it with great precision. Yet somehow, these folks bend that into a negative, And it's always very curious. We're seeing already that the biotech industry is now less interested in changing the organism itself, whether it's the corn or, you know, pigs or whatever, um, and more interested in changing the ecosystem. Um, so we're seeing, you know, gene editing being used for, for genetically engineered pollinators, for genetically engineered mi microbes in the soil, for changing everything around the agroecosystem. And this is also about not having a GMO at the end of the day. The organism itself may not be engineered, but everything around it will be. And um, so we have to really pay attention to that and, and think about how we respond to that. 
because our concerns are ecological, our concerns are agroecological, and if you're modifying the entire agroecosystem, then then that has major significance for the web of life. Um, and of course, we're seeing, as we've touched on in this conversation, that talking just about the biotech industry without looking at data, really agriculture is becoming a data, uh, about data. Data is the new soil. Um, and, and this is, you know, the, the large players in agribusiness in the next 10 years are going to be Amazon, Google, um, uh, Facebook even, uh, Microsoft certainly, and Gates. So, you know, we have to realize that this, where this digitization happens is, is where, where the change is happening. Um, and those players are trying to change who controls the food system. We're going to see a so-called food system summit next year. And it's really being driven by the Gates Foundation, by the World Economic Foundation. It's going to push uh, genetic engineering and gene drives and many other things. So here's another interesting edge of this is the modification of the environment, which they automatically assume that humans can do no good. There can be nothing that is hypothesized, tested, shown to make an improvement, and then done. And we can modify bacteria, modify a rhizosphere, either by the addition of different bacteria or by modifying those that are there to do their job better. And that's a really important edge as we begin to look at the uh, modification of microbiomes. It seems to be a very viable way to improve plant growth and development. And you also see the implication of large tech companies and Gates coming up again and again. And if you're playing Gates to te te tequila shots, uh, you're probably under the table by now. But there's more. Here we go. <laughs> and the good news is I don't think the world, I don't think people are buying it. We're seeing actually a growth of agroecology, of, of, of supporting peasants who are really feeding the world. So, you know, these are what the industry thinks, but that doesn't mean the future is bound into that. I've been on that because I do think it's so important to draw a distinction between what industry is plotting and what is actually viable and really speak to the power that every single person has to influence the food system based on the choices that you make about what you buy. And we know from some market research that we did with the Nanjimo project last year that 72% of North Americans believe we need to be very cautious about altering our food. And one thing I want to say about that is backing up to some of the myths that the biotech industry has perpetuated. One of the really fundamental ones is that if you are concerned about biotechnology, that you're anti-science or that you don't understand science. And hopefully people are compelled by listening to the scientists in this conversation that that's absolutely not the case. Um, and in fact, true scientific inquiry is all about asking questions. The corporate science that biotechnology companies do is about looking for specific answers in the interest of profits. It's very unscientific, actually, the corporate biotechnology science. So I think it's important to just hold, just to reject that framing, um, because it's one of the ways that the biotech industry really seeks to manipulate the public is to make people feel afraid that they'll be perceived as not smart or not scientific if they don't buy into this. And that's just completely untrue. Hold on a minute. The studies that have been done on these crops have now been done for 30 years, 25 years in the field. And there is no evidence that shows evidence of harm. That there's nothing that shows that these crops are toxic or poisonous, like you claim. On the other hand, 
It is the studies by the activists, the Seralini paper that arrested interest in genetic technologies throughout Africa that was never repeated, that showed false data, that showed shocking images that can never be reproduced by four other laboratories that did very rigorous experiments. So she's got this backwards. It's the people that have been lying to you for 25 years that are represented here on this panel. It is their bad science. So if you don't believe what academics have vetted from, you know, maybe corporate science, maybe academic science, what has survived peer review, what has survived academic vetting, then maybe you do have to check yourself for anti-scientific bias. The stuff that is being done, the technology that's in the field, has been shown to be good. And I want to even take it a step and challenge us to consider that there are other really valid ways of knowing other than even science. So even though, yes, all of this science is showing that we should be concerned, that it's super chaotic and unpredictable what's happening. We're playing with fire. And also, I just want to represent that the majority of people who are concerned about this technology don't necessarily understand these techniques and the level of depth that we're discussing in this conversation, but there's an intuitive knowing, and I'm speaking to this as uh, I'm not a scientist. I'm a mom of a three-year-old and a six-year-old. I really trust my own intuitive knowing of what is natural and how do I take care of myself and my family and the connection in the web of life. And in this critical moment that we're in on planet Earth with climate change and loss of biodiversity, we have really, through a lot of systems based on white supremacy and patriarchy, really disconnected ourselves from the source of all life, which is nature, and we are a part of that. And so I just, I, I want to share that interest of helping people feel empowered that if you just feel a little bit like that just seems icky to me, don't, like, that's okay, that's valid. You Intuition is valid. And also, if you want to get into all this of it, just know, as you've seen in this conversation, there is a lot of science that can show that this is not at all precise and that corporate biotech science is not very legitimate science. And it's certainly not something that should go unquestioned. Let's start at the end. There's not a scientist on this earth that says that this technology should be unquestioned. And there's not a regulatory agency on this earth that says that it should be unquestioned. In fact, over the years, historically, this technology has been the most questioned and the most rigorously tested of any technology ever known in food. So, you know, her argument falls apart there. But she says that her icky feeling is as good as my data. And I'm sorry to say that that's just not true. Mommy intuition is wrong about vaccines, it's wrong about autism, and all the other places where the Jenny McCarthy's of the world have put people's lives in danger because of their feelings that were contrary to scientific data. This is a real problem. No, your intuition is not as good as my data. No, I, I, I feel sad watching the reductionism of the science discourse. After all, IG Farben and Standard Oil working to kill people with new techniques and new chemicals was brilliant science. 
but it was not the science of life. It was the science of death. For 50 years, we were told repeatedly that only chemicals in agriculture is scientific agriculture. In spite of that, organic, biodynamic agroecology kept growing and are still growing. When we started to say there's an obligation, it's not enough to know how to modify an organism. Part of the science is to know what that modification does to the organism and to the environment. That's how we created the discipline of biosafety. That's how we wrote the Article 19.3 in the Convention on Biological Diversity. That's how the Cartagena Protocol was created. Biosafety is a science. The propaganda machine of the biotech industry calls every biosafety expert anti-science. I, her chain of thought is so crazy. Okay, here we go. Um, first of all, let's start at the end. There's nobody who says biosafety experts are anti-science. We appreciate biosafety experts who do put critical evaluation of science, of course. Safety is job one for everybody involved, including the companies you hate, because if they have something go wrong, they're sued. I mean, you see them do something where nothing was wrong, like in Roundup, and a huge litigation there that you can manufacture against a company strictly because you don't like them. There's no problem with organic, biodyn well, biodynamic, I got some problems, that's kind of BS, but when you look at uh, organic agriculture, it's another production system, it's another way of doing it, and it's gotten better over the years because of new ways of learning about the way the genetics work with different techniques. That, nothing wrong with that. She really misses the boat, and it's super unfortunate. Problem is, they don't have science. Science is to know. Do they know the organism? Do those who make synthetic fertilizers know the soil? Do those who are pushing gene editing and wanting to rewrite the code of life even know what the code of life is about? And I think it is important to see the discourse of reset of the World Economic Forum that has been pushed this month. Part of it is this reset. And I think we should get confidence from the fact that they said they'd feed us with chemical fertilizers and pesticides. We put that aside. Then they came with GMOs. That's dead. Now they're coming with the new GMOs. This will die too, as long as people retain their thinking, as long as people make their choices with informed knowledge. And as far as food is concerned, as Megan said, she said, I trust my intuition. I call it trusting your gut, which is your second brain. And the gut has science, it has knowledge, it has intelligence, and it knows faster than any other lie what's going wrong with the food. Wow, she's a hoot. First, she starts out by saying they don't have science, but then you should trust your gut. So saying that someone else doesn't have science and saying that we're going to disregard it anyway um, is kind of an interesting synthesis. She also says the chemical fertilizers, that kind of thing, is dead. I'm still going strong as far as I can tell. And that GMOs, well, she means genetic engineering of crop plants is dead, and gene editing will die too. Unfortunately, it seems like in medicine, gene editing is taking a new hold. In medicine, genetic engineering revolutionized the production of insulin and other pharmaceuticals that people use on a daily basis. And it just shows how disingenuous this is. When they bring in all this fear, uncertainty, and doubt, they forget about these areas 
where these products are used every single day for the last 30 years and no problems. It shows that we do know what the organism is doing. We can predict what the outcomes will be. We can tell you what the modifications are. It's all very predictable if you're willing to ignore your gut that says icky and pay attention to the data and the science. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And um, I want to sort of go into some of the solutions as well. Uh, firstly, I want to ask what role should labeling play when we're talking about these foods that are spreading so quickly uh, and there's more and more patents on our food? What is the role of labeling in these new crops? Well, I would just say thank you very much for the non-GMO project. Like the label that matters at the moment on this topic is the non-GMO project. Those two people who spend their time trying to understand what's coming. The governments aren't doing this. The industry isn't doing this. They're not providing that information. The, the non-GMO project is doing that on behalf of all of us. And um, I just wanted to say that's, you know, that's a tremendous disservice. Um, so I think that's, that's a label we, we have to be supporting. At the organic industry... Uh, or, or the organic um, label is another one that at least has kept GMOs out. And I think there needs to be a conversation about whether organic standards are clearly keeping out these new techniques. Um, that's, that's something that organic movements are trying to talk about. And then we come to the, the other questions of labeling, which I'm sure Megan and others have more helpful things to say about. And you will see gene-edited crops in organic cultivation in the next 10 years. There's no question in my mind because you'll be able to develop crops that will have special fortifications against disease and against other pressures that organic farmers face that they don't have the best tools to fight. It'll greatly expand organic acreage, allow organic food prices to come down, and allow farmers to have more genetic alternatives to chemistry. That's pretty cool. Megan, do we want to jump to you? Sure. Thank you, Jim for um, your affirmation of the value of the work the project is doing. And it certainly, um, it certainly feels to us in the wake of having in the United States, the National Bioengineered Food Disclosure Standard, it feels like our work is more important than ever because what's, been, what's made clear through that legislation is there was a period of time when we first saw Prop 37 on the ballot in California. We saw some traction in other states of some relatively meaningful mandated GMO disclosure labeling. Um, and what this federal law did is made all of that illegal. It superseded it with this national law that is really pretty meaningless. And it's unclear how this, um, how the National Bioengineered Food Disclosure Standard will address new GMOs. It appears pretty clear based on the definitions in the standard that um, gene-edited products wouldn't be included, although some gene-edited products are on their list of bioengineered foods. So I think this kind of backs up your point, Jim, that the, the expertise and the careful watching of this really isn't there. There's some basic misunderstanding or lack of information reflected in how that rule is put together. But either way, we know that there are huge loopholes um, by which companies can avoid disclosing when they contain GMOs, um, one of them being just simply if there isn't detectable modified DNA, then it's automatically not a GMO, even if it was made from a GMO crop or input. So um, unfortunately, in the United States, there's just really no hope of 
meaningful federally mandated GMO labeling, and, and that's why we have created this alternative nonprofit system through the non-GMO project. I think also that uh, the non-GMO project could well need to come to the UK. I think we need, need them to come to the UK and Europe pretty soon, because at the moment there's a massive push within the UK to deregulate gene editing. And with deregulation goes the identity that this product is, is unedited. Um, with that goes the labelling. We would no longer have labelling if the lobbyists have their way. And um, the same push is, is underway in Europe as well, to get rid of the, the GMO-specific regulation and also to get rid of the labelling so that, that these products become basically invisible. And um, actually, I, I was talking to a scientist recently who said that um, there is an aspect to deregulation which I personally had not thought about before. But she said that um, she had actually sat on, on European <coughs> regulatory bodies for GMOs. And she said the, re the chief reason why the industry does not want uh, labeling GMOs and regulation of GMOs as well as the fact that, of course, it doesn't want us to know that we're, we're buying them and eating them. She said there's another purpose as well, which is that regulation forces the companies to actually define their product and say what it does. And because gene editing and GM is such a very messy technique, and because they often end up with something that they didn't mean to end up with, uh, this is not something that the industry can tolerate. Um, it, it wants a completely blank slate. It wants to be able to say that this product does X without actually proving that the product does X. That's really not true. You can look at anything with high resolution new technology and look at gene expression changes. Look at proteomic changes, like the number of proteins that are out there. I mean, the anti-GMO movement for years has looked at proteomics and said, what, there's one weird spot here, what is that? And even if it's not reproducible, they say there's the evidence that something is wrong. Well, you can look for those things. We have the ability to assess if something changes. And it isn't that companies are trying to cover up something or hide something. It's that there's nothing to fear. There's no evidence of harm. There's nothing that you have to be afraid of or avoid. And so the problem is, is that the people who are creating the misunderstandings and the disinformation are the ones who are basically saying that you need to avoid these products. They profit from saying you have to avoid these products. So the non-GMO project stays afloat by putting a label on food that is perfectly safe. But they need to convince you that there's a reason you need that label there. And that's what this whole movement is all about. And if the product is shown not to do X, they want to shift and say, actually, this product does YZ instead. Um, in other words, the regulation is, is a definition which the industry doesn't want. It, it wants to remain invisible, remain underground, and just flood the market with these unidentified um, products. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's such a, a huge issue where consumers are not going to know what they're eating are not going to know um, what they're feeding their children, are not going to be able to make the choice of what type of food system they support. Um, and that becomes an ever-evolving question of why do we continue to patent foods? We'll say it again. Nobody is patenting foods. 
You're patenting technology that's used to grow a plant and improve a plant. You're uh, using the technology to develop patents around new medicines that can solve people's problems. That you need to recoup your R&D. You need to have a way to make the money back that you spent to create this new product and to seed future innovation. Um, and as much as we could talk about this issue all day long, um, it is a very complex issue and there's a lot of aspects to it. Uh, I'd also like to focus on the solutions because I think it can be overwhelming for a lot of people. So I was wondering if maybe each of you, whoever is feeling compelled to, can share some solutions that people can do or can be a part of. I think that one has to really support the kind of agriculture that we want with our wallets, with our money. Um, I'm very, very fortunate in that I do have agroecological and biodynamic farmers near to where I live. So I can put my money where my mouth is and support that kind of farming. Amen. And you should support what you believe in and the kind of farming and food production that you believe in. That's fantastic. But allow others to have the same choice. And don't scare people away from their choices because they're not congruent with what you believe. This is the biggest problem with these folks. They think that their method or their, their beliefs are the best beliefs and that what they believe in is what everyone else should do. So it's not enough to just have a farmer they can buy from. It's about scaring the hell out of you and your family so that you don't buy from others. It's about taking away your choice. I think it's vitally important. I think that education is important as well. Um, to reach the young people in schools and teach them where their food comes from, teach them the various ways of producing food uh, so that they're, they're more aware of what's happening to their food and what's happening to the seas. Again, I agree a thousand percent. We should be educating children, but we should be educating them in STEM. We should be training them in science, training them how to test a hypothesis. We should be telling them the truth about science and about, about their food. And I think we do that in a very good way. Unfortunately, it's the disinformation machine of activists like this, like the uh, website Kids Right to Know, which lies to children. These are the places that bad information is given out, and people who claim to be on the side of good are actually producing the misinformation and disinformation that clouds the educational process. Really, the... Clearly, as we've shown you, know, that, that, that there's nothing inherently wrong with our crops. And from our discussion today, that if, if we wanted to improve a crop in some way, the way forward is through natural breeding, because that's what preserves the genetic integrity and brings together the families, the holistic function of genetics that gives you the complex traits that you're after. So... The problem is not with the, with the plants, but the system that's in place, clearly. And that this is the solution, therefore, is a shift in the system from a high chemical input, intense agricultural, commodity-driven system to a true agroecological system, one that draws on the knowledge, the local knowledge of the farmer like like Jim was mentioning how we have all most of the food produced by the peasant farmer. That, that's where the knowledge is. They know, they've got the seeds. They have the knowledge uh, on how to grow effectively 
with security in their area. So this clearly is um, where the emphasis should be. It should be in these these uh, agroecology, the shift to, to use the agroecology, which is not just growing organically, but taking the agricultural system as a whole, using the knowledge, that the diverse knowledge and the diverse varieties of, of seeds locally adapted. So for me, this is the, this is the solution and, and supporting it locally wherever we are uh, is paramount, as Claire um, uh, inferred. But this is where I'm agreeing again, is that, you know, folks want their locally adapted varieties. They want the stuff that they have grown for centuries or that's used, they're used to it in their communities or their cultures. They don't want the calories that can be imported from the USA, the ones that Claire says are so abundant and that we can feed the world with what we have. It's not true. You want to feed people with what they want, what they know how to grow. The point is, is that they should have access to the technologies to grow it in an optimal way that's most sustainable. Now, you also hear Dr. Antonio go backwards a little bit in that he says it's not the plant that's the problem, it's the system. When earlier he said, you can't know anything about the plant, it's total fantasy. If you can change a gene and not, and suddenly uh, the plant is okay, you know, you have to be holistic. You know, somehow that just went out the window. So it makes you wonder where they're really coming from. You know, we're, our food systems are going through these twin shocks of um, digitization and this, this technological change and, and also climate and biodiversity collapse and so forth. I fi I'm finding a real interesting um, learning in another shock that we've all been going through and still going through, which is the COVID crisis. Um, and, and in the context of sudden lockdowns and people suddenly finding themselves asking the question, where is my food coming from, in a very sort of short-term crisis that's happening and very intense, many people began to reach out to make sure they could get, farmers from, get food from local farmers. CSAs went through the roof. People started to say, I'm going to plant a garden to make sure there's food growing just outside my, my door. Um, people started to try and make sure they had access to local food. A lot of that has happened at an accelerated rate in the last half a year. And this is people making sure that they're getting their food from places they can trust, farmers locally growing, connecting to the soil and seed. Um, I think that is an extremely good thing. And um, we have a moment at the moment where we can deepen that, where we can point to that. So this is, this is people are learning in, in a very quick way under this crisis um, to, to get their own food uh, in a way that doesn't require genetic engineering, does not require agribusiness chains, does not require digitization. I'm not talking about buying groceries from Amazon. Um, I think we, can, we, can, we should together celebrate the ways in which people are relocalizing, rapidly relocalizing their systems under crisis and build that up. So here I am again agreeing. I think it's fantastic to have people growing their own food and people shopping locally speaking with local farmers. My wife is a small farmer. It is about you connecting with your food, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. I think it's great. But that doesn't mean that technology is bad. In fact, it would be great to have some other technologies that were more uh, applicable to small farms. It'd be great to have some varieties that had more disease and insect resistance because we don't have those kinds of genetic engineering opportunities in small vegetable crops. I just want to build on that. I mean, of course, I would 
be remiss to not say that buying on Jumo Project Verified is part of the solution. And I really resonate with what's being shared. One thing that I'm thinking about right now is um, this coming Monday in the States is Indigenous Peoples Day. Some people federally, it's still celebrated as Columbus Day, but an increasing number of us are honoring it as Indigenous Peoples Day. And I, I just think there's so much to be learned by looking at traditional ways of producing food and respecting traditional ways of producing food because the commodification of life that is reflected in genetic engineering and extends to the commodification of human beings um, is a paradigm that is inherently destructive. It's not working. And so I, I just want to say again, just speaking to, in addition to being curious and learning about traditional food production, respecting and remembering that there are other ways to do this, I think also just on a personal level, reclaiming your knowledge that you are not a commodity, that you are connected to the web of life, and that you have intelligence in your body that will lead you, that will never lead you astray, that will help bring you into connection and to create a future that is healthy for all beings on planet Earth. But there's science and there's not science. And this is what's so important, is that we can look at the ways that evidence is gathered to tell us about the physical world around us, or we can simply trust our guts. These folks are, these folks are gut trusters. And when you trust your gut, you can make some mistakes. And this is why it's okay to have beliefs and have your feelings about what's right and what's wrong, and use those moral overlays to think about the evidence. But you can't just disqualify evidence because you don't like a company and condemn an evidence because you don't feel it's natural or your gut tells you otherwise. Thank you. And Vandana? Yeah, following up with what the others have said, uh, Michael talked about, uh, you know, the complexity of living organisms and complex traits are the valuable ones. This is what has led to us promoting participatory breeding with our farmers. Farmers are the first breeders. That's where we have the amazing foods. That's where the indigenous farmers and knowledge comes from. And now there's more and more knowledge. They're richer in phytochemicals, measured in weight, they might be less, but measured in nutrition, they are much higher. Another reductionist category is the yield per acre. And in Navdanya, we redefined it and said, no, we're going to intensify biodiversity, not chemicals, and we measure nutrition and health per acre, and we can feed two times the world by conserving biodiversity, regenerating the soil, and intensifying our crops in mixtures the way they should be. The final reductionism is taking food and turning it into a commodity. And that's where we have to create much more intimate circulation. And our work in Navdanya has shown that when Farmers are sovereign over their seeds, sovereign over their methods of production and their knowledge of production, and sovereign over the distribution and the market. They are earning 10 times more than those participating in the global commodity system. Global commodity farmers are in debt. They're the ones committing suicide. So we are at a very big watershed for the future of food, the future of humanity. And there's so much to build on. And of course, we should be alert. And watch every new trick, as you have said. But they're tricks. And as long as we are aware they're tricks, we'll find the ways to resist them and keep building the right way to grow food and the right way to eat. I always like the discussion of seed sovereignty. 
that farmers should be allowed to choose the seeds they want and grow what they want as long as it's what I approve of. <laughs> you know, it's such a duplicitous position that Shiva has, you know, is that she's all for farmers making their choices as long as their choices are consistent with what she believes. But you can see where all this comes from. It's all based on their beliefs of how they think it should be, not in the way that it is, in the way in which the scale allows us to feed more animals and feed more people. Technology is not a bad thing. And you can see how this entire conversation is switched from indictment of a technology, which they couldn't do very well, to indictment of a food system, which certainly has its drawbacks. But why disparage gene editing as the problem when it's really just another tool in the toolbox? And we continue. I got the meeting right. So, so the the issue the issue for me is like is that the food movement is a political movement that many people don't seem to understand perfectly. At least, you know, when you when you buy organic food and local food and non-GMO food, you're participating in a political movement. There's no political party at the head of it, but it is a political movement. And it's a political movement of sovereignty, right? It prizes the ability of people to provide for themselves locally, to do that independently of the center, the central power structures. And you basically are, are mutually supporting all kinds of other people who are participating in this food movement, even though you don't necessarily realize it. And so what, what we're seeing is the kind of emergence of a political movement that actually has a social, a biological logic to it, right? Like, you know, the, the other social movements that oppose, uh, uh, you know, neoliberalism, that oppose commodification, that oppose uh, inequality, they have a certain kind of logic, but the logic is not the same as the food movement. And it, their logic in many ways is deficient. The, the logic of the food system, the logic of the food movement is a truly holistic and self-sufficient set of organizing principles, right? That are contained within that. And we have to understand that we're all part of that system. And if we want to defeat these forces represented by people like Bill Gates, that is where the logic will come from. Holy crap. <laughs> I'm not sure where the logic comes from there. Um, I, I'm not even going to try to unpack that disaster. It's more word salad that sounds good to people who like word salad, I guess. Here we go. Thank you so much. And I, I do want to thank everyone for being on this panel uh, here today. You've all shared such incredible insights. And another thing that we can all continue to do is divest from the system uh, with what we're eating, but also where we're putting our money, make sure that what you are investing in, in your banks and stocks and shares is not something that's destroying the world. Our money speaks words. And we need to make sure that we are voting for a world that is benefiting everyone, including generations like mine. Amazing. I want to thank you all again for all of your work, for trying to protect biodiversity, for trying to protect nature, our health, our food. Uh, you've all done such incredible things for my generations and all the generations that are yet to come. Um, so thank you for your insights. Thank you for all of your information. Thank you for your knowledge. It is so greatly appreciated in this time. Uh, and thank you for everyone who watched. I hope that you got something from this, that you were able to take 
information into your own daily lives and we can go forward to fight for a better future for us all. And thank you for listening to an extended version of the Talking Biotech podcast. I felt it was really important to dissect this discussion because they didn't include an actual scientist on the discussion. There's a couple folks there that get close to it, but still obviously people who don't understand the technology that they criticize. They are so against the technology that they fail to see the goodness that it can do. We've seen the same thing for 30 years through innovations in crop technologies and in medicine that have worked out to be phenomenal, that have cut insecticide use, that have changed the patterns of herbicide use to lower toxicity herbicides that are more environmentally friendly, to bring new innovations that could have changed the developing world if we would have had the courage to allow them to happen. So these are the folks who have stood against technology for 30 years. It's not unusual for them to do it again. The problem is that when you have people who are standing against a technology they don't even understand, they're poisoning the trust in the public in this technology. This technology can do good things, but these folks are so upset about the people who are using it that maybe a few companies that they don't like are using it, that the dozens and dozens of new startups that are happening, I should say hundreds of startups that are, that are happening, this technology has democratized science and has allowed more smaller players to participate in research. This is a good thing all the way around. Well, thank you for sticking with me through this super extendo version of the Talking Biotech podcast. Write a review on iTunes. Let me know if you like this one or if this was a real drag. Um, it's important to know. Uh, I can do more of these. There's a lot of things out there that we could easily criticize. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but... It has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.